0: AA Beyond Belief is a podcast by for and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. Luke Warsfold is an addiction therapist located in London, England. His organization, Lisa Inside Addiction, has two physical locations in the area, as well as an online component where he can help clients over the internet. He is a recovered addict himself, and his podcast, Inside Addiction, is a tremendous resource for people in recovery, as well as their families. Today he is my guest at AA Beyond Belief. Luke, welcome to AA Beyond Belief.
1: Thank you very much, John, for having me on the show.
0: Well, I've been looking forward to speaking with you. You know, when I started to learn about you and did a little bit of research, I felt like we had something in common. Uh, You grew up with a drug-addicted mother, and she died while you were young. Um, I grew up with a mother who was mentally ill and took her life when I was 21. We both became um, addicts, and we both actually got into recovery fairly young in life. I think that maybe we've, like everybody in recovery, we've taken maybe different paths and we have uh, different um, experiences with that. And I'm really looking forward to learning about your experience, how you got to where you are today and what, and what you're doing today. So if you don't mind, can you just start with an introduction of your background and how you, what you think fed into your addiction and your recovery?
1: Yeah, so for me, a pivotal moment I always remember is there was a local bench around the corner from the place where I lived at the time, and I always used to go to this uh, bench all the time. I used to drink and smoke weed and use drugs because I didn't want to get kicked out of the house share I was living in. And at the time, I didn't have any money. I was, you know, £16,000 in debt, and my business had just failed, and I had loads of clients calling my phone, chasing me, and credit cards, and all that kind of stuff. And that's just where I used to sit, just to kind of um, yeah, use drugs and smoke weed and all that kind of stuff. And I guess I just felt ashamed. I felt ashamed of where I was at, what was going on. And, you know, I felt in a sense that I was just being buried or just digging this hole deeper and deeper. But I just didn't know how to get out. And I remember calling around as many people as I could, um, you know, manipulating them, trying to get the emotional leverage so they could lend me more money to buy drugs and keep using because I just didn't have anything. And I remember having one last friend in my phone book um, who I wanted to call to lend me money. But he was an entrepreneur like me and he was further ahead of the journey and he'd actually, you know, uh, made good progress. So I didn't really want to call him because I knew what he would say. But it turns out when I called him, John, and I asked him for money, just the thing he repeated back to me was, you need money to buy drugs, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I just need a bit of money. Please help me out. All of the same stuff we always say. And he just said, Luke, you're a crackhead. And although I'd never smoked crack before, in that moment, it just kind of pierced all my denial. And I was like, oh my God, my sort of mask or facade had just been shattered. And I realized I was just like my mum. You know, I'd never believed I was like her. I was always in denial. And I was like, I'm just like my mum using drugs. Um and that was just a big wake-up call when I realized I wasn't addict heading towards death just like her. And I considered, you know, that reality, you know, if I keep using drugs, I'm gonna die. And You know, she already laid down that example of what happens when we don't get things under control. And that was really hard. I was just kind of,
0: were you afraid that maybe it was, I had this fear that it was going to be inevitable that I would turn out like my mother. And I, I wonder if you had a similar, similar fear.
1: Yeah, so for me, it was kind of a conflict because I was like, I'll never be like my mum. That was my belief. It was almost like I was running away from this thing. I'll never be like her. I'll never cause someone that much pain. And then I turned around and looked, and that's what I realised in that moment when my friend said, you're a crack addict. I was like, shit, I'm exactly like her. The thing I tried not to become, I was like, this is exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, okay, so then you, you your friend... Um kind of woke you up to this idea that that you definitely, you know, had a problem. And so where did you go for help? And in in that early period?
1: Yeah, well, I guess in terms of help, I did go to some meetings and stuff like that. But I guess my story, it didn't necessarily start, you know, there on that moment, I guess, Uh, to give you a bit more background, I was born premature, and at 26 weeks, I was quite, yeah, like early premature. Uh, and that was because my mum, you know, did a lot of drugs and stuff when I was pregnant. So I guess I just wanted to kind of get out of there as quickly as possible. And when I was born, I weighed as much as a bag of sugar and my head was the size of a tennis ball. Um, and my dad um, used to hold me in his hand like this and my legs would dangle down here and my head would be up here. And I was like the size of his, the palm of his hand. And that was kind of when I was brought into the world um, at that kind of early age. And... As I sort of grew up, um, my mum, she was in and out of prison and in and out of rehab as well. And I had two brothers and my dad. So I was around this kind of masculine environment in the early years. And there wasn't really much room for emotions. So I didn't really, you know, cry or let out emotions. And if I did, they would just kind of beat me up. Boys will be boys. It's okay to kind of fight and to, you know, show aggression that it wasn't kind of okay to allow yourself to feel in a sense. And it wasn't like like uh said in words, it was just kind of the environment, I guess the culture and the unspoken words and the unspoken messages we get early in life. And that was definitely one that I sort of internalized. Don't show your emotions. Um, And even times when I fell off my bike and my dad was at work, and he was like, Oh, just get up and ride home. You'll be all right, son. Um, It's it's not that bad. And then it turned out a few days later, I actually like broken my shoulder and I was just kind of powering through like a man. Um, And yeah, I just learned to sort of cover up those things and just, yeah, learn to power on and just keep going and going and going. And like you say, we both have something in common and when I was 10 my mum died and when she died at 10 because of her drinking it just kept getting worse and worse and worse, I just felt abandoned and the little bit of emotions, if I had any left, I just kind of shut down and I just ripped out anything that connected my head to my heart, I just sort of buried everything down, the sort of chest got locked and that was that, there was no more emotions and at that kind of time was when I sort of started secondary school and I got introduced to kind of drugs and alcohol. And again, it's not necessarily conscious decisions, but it was just like drugs and alcohol here. I don't really have any emotions or I'm not aware of them. And when everything's got stressful, I just kept using drugs and that's just the way it worked, uh, I guess. And I learned from an early age. And as I left school, I started my own business And as I grew my company, the more stress there was, the more people we hired, the more money there was to manage, the more I just used drugs. And it just kept going and going and going. But it was just unsustainable. And it just kept getting worse. And I didn't have any mental foundation. I didn't have any kind of tools in the toolbox, so to speak. And eventually I lost my business. And my self-worth was tied to my net worth. So as my business sort of disappeared because I couldn't function I couldn't run it and you know the things just kept slipping through the net I was smoking more weed than ever running from all the pain drinking and using drugs and that was when I had to move out of my flat and stop driving around in a Mercedes and move into a house share and that's where I got to that place where I was on a park bench and that's where I was sitting when I realized you know I was heading towards death just like my mum and, yeah, that's kind of the story where I got up to in terms of, yeah, when I started to realize what recovery.
0: Okay. And uh, so so who was the first person who helped you? Where, where did you go for help?
1: So, um, I did a lot of personal development and I watched loads of stuff on YouTube. So I knew there was more out there. Uh, I just didn't know how I was going to get it. I understood that, wait a minute, people have succeeded. You hear rags to riches stories. So I knew something was possible. I didn't know what that looked like for me. So I decided to book a therapist, and I just Googled therapist and just booked one. And when I kind of walked into my first therapy session, I really thought I was going to die from bringing up all that pain, that chest I'd locked for so many years. I was then opening but I guess in the moment when I was sitting on the park bench and I kind of just kind of decided, you know, if I'm not going to die like my mum, then I'm going to become my best self, you know, that kind of addict, black and white thinking at the time. But if I'm not going to be the worst person in the world, then I'll be the best. Um, so I was kind of committed to that process, committed to therapy. So the first sort of session, I went in there and just kind of opened that chest and sprawled out all of my emotions. Um, and now I see a different side of the coin being a therapist and seeing clients do that and taking them through the process, which is just an interesting dynamic. But yeah, I started with therapy; that was the main place. As things you have moved on from a real
0: twenty first century experience, you know, it's not like you have to walk into a smoky room somewhere <laughs> and, and 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 be secretive or anything. And and it's what I'm hearing more and more often. Um, people that are there, first of all, you can find information on the internet. And you can and you can learn so much. And and I know that from what little I read of your story, that you 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 really uh, poured yourself into books. You you started reading about what what was going on with you, and you kind of developed some ideas in, from that process.
1: Yeah, I've read loads of books, um, and I was a big fan of Audible, and I still am to this day. But I listened to so many books. Um, just about upgrading your thinking. I was a big fan of, you know, you can't solve a problem at the same level of consciousness that created it. I need to know more information, surely. And that came from looking at the mentors. You know, there's these people out here that have achieved success. What do they know that I don't? What am I missing? I must not know something. So I searched loads of books for those answers and just read so many good ones in the early days, um, you know, different ones around therapy and ones around personal development, and just gained so many good concepts and ideas from them that just didn't necessarily uh, change the contents of what was happening in my life, but just shifted the context of how I was seeing my reality, how I was seeing what was.
0: Okay, so was it was it? I guess those two things coming together: your personal experience in therapy, and then what you what you learned. Was that kind of the motivating force? behind you becoming a therapist?
1: So the motivating force didn't happen until much later, a few years down the line. Um, But at that time, I was just focused um, on growing to become my best. And I didn't really know where that would lead. I knew, you know, I wanted to just get things under control and just grow and keep moving forward and using and applying these lessons and going to therapy every single week and just Understanding my emotions, understanding myself and reconnecting, you know, the wires essentially that I ripped out that connected my head to my heart, discovering what emotions were, that I was allowed to feel them, what it was like to be angry and happy and sad and why I was feeling all of these ways. And just digging really deep into my own psychology as to what happened with my brothers growing up. Why wasn't I allowed to show my emotions? And it's not necessarily about blame of blaming the environment. Again, I can't change the contents of what happened, but I can change the context. I could change the lens in which I saw all of my past and everything that happened.
0: I like that. I like that. And, uh, you know, I was actually, I was speaking with somebody the other day, uh, actually last night, uh, a person originally from London and now living in Thailand. And he was talking about um, overcoming this victim mentality, but the way he was talking about it, it, it seemed to me like he was almost punishing himself for um, the experiences that he had. It wasn't like he was learning to put them into proper context. And I, I kind of, I think, I think that's important. It's like, it's, in my opinion um, i it was it was important for me to recognize the trauma that I experienced, but not necessarily just stay stuck there, focused on uh, you know another person, but to at least understand where why I react the way I do to life today
1: yeah, and that 's one of the things uh, that I go over in my program with clients is around acceptance, so accepting some of the stuff from the past. Because fighting reality doesn't change reality. We can't change what's happened. But also the critical uh, yeah, bit is that acceptance doesn't mean approval. It doesn't mean you're condoning the behaviour. It doesn't mean against change. When like you say that stuff happened, I wasn't a victim of it. And I can take responsibility for not doing that in the future But I can also accept the past without condoning it or approving of it, you know, or feeling deserving of it. That stuff happened and I'm taking responsibility to then change that behavior going forward.
0: So before you got into your studies, um, and I I think that now, and I'm, I'm not, I don't know how to pronounce this, dialectic dialectic yeah
1: dialectical behavioral therapy okay
0: so before you but and and that's what you you kind of specialize in that area and so before you got into that and you started learning about that um all the books that you're reading and the experiences that you were having you kind of came up did you kind of come up in your own mind this these this a formula that you later recognized as this this form of therapy
1: yeah so as i kind of Worked on myself and read books and went to therapy. Um, I did go to Al-Anon and NA as well, which I, I highly rate. But um, as I worked on myself over you know loads and many, many years, I sort of discovered four main areas of my life. And one of them was mindfulness and my mind and thoughts and what was going on. I learned about meditation. And just connecting the idea, why when I think about using the drug, do I have to go and do it? It doesn't necessarily make sense. I don't want to do it. How do these thoughts keep impacting my reality? And it just just didn't make sense in in a sense. And I had to learn meditation and then understand and sit with my mind and become an observer of my thoughts and watch what was going on. And that was a massive part for me. And then making it practical with the mindfulness of using it in the day to day life. Okay, so I'm having a thought, and it's a random day, and I know I've got to call a client to clean up my mess, but I don't want to call the client. I want to run from my emotions, and I want to go and use a drug. Recognising that thought does not equal an action or decision. Doesn't mean I have to do it. It's just a thought. I can sit with those emotions. I can sit with those thoughts, and I can decide to create the reality that I want in the direction of the life that I want. I don't have to be a slave to my past and a slave to the old neuropathways and I can start building the future and mindfulness and meditation was a massive part of that.
0: Yeah, uh you know I, the more more and more I, that's what I hear from a lot of the people that I know in recovery. Um I myself have never been good at practicing meditation. I find it really difficult. To me it's like um it's something that I know is is helpful and good for me kind of like exercise and when I do it I want to do more of it. Uh, because I do find it's helpful for me. The benefit that I get from it is the ability to just kind of recognize that my brain creates thoughts, and I can just kind of let those thoughts go. I don't necessarily have to grab grab on to them. Uh, when I can, when I can practice that, it's uh, it makes life a little bit easier to manage. You know.
1: Yeah, like you say, it makes it a bit easier to manage. And for me personally, it just allowed me to slow everything down. Being very impulsive, going a million miles an hour. Just I'm wanting things now. When I entered early recovery, I wanted my life to change. Now I've used drugs and drunk for so long, and my mum died when I was early, so I had just an insane sense of impatience. You know, I wanted everything now. I want my mess to be cleaned up now. I want success now. I want I want emotional mastery now. I want all of that stuff instantly, and that was really hard. It was really hard to have the patience to clean up my mess and take responsibility and go for all of the pain. And one phrase I always used to repeat to myself during the process was, Luke, you haven't been buried, you've been planted. And I would always just remind myself, you know, you're not underground, you're a seedling and you're going to come up for the soil and it will be worth it. Keep, you know, slogging away, going to therapy, doing the emotional work, you know, investing in your growth, investing time and energy and money and just keep pushing forward, because you can get out the other side, and that led me to the next thing I kind of learned, which was around my relationships, and I guess ultimately the relationship with myself, and I was very much a people-pleaser, I put everyone else's needs before mine, and that had to do with my mum and abandonment, if I don't put everyone else's needs above mine, then how am I going to, then they're just going to abandon me, so understanding how to set boundaries with people, how to communicate those boundaries effectively. And that was part of the reason for my business before failing was because I didn't set any boundaries. I didn't charge clients because I didn't want to ask them for money, um, which is just terrible. Right.
0: Sense. <laughs> great but, <business> plan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great business plan. But I didn't understand the emotional sort of tectonic plates that were shifting of, oh, if I don't, I'm not charging the money in business, because I, I'm transferring them onto the onto them my mum who will then abandon me if I then ask them for money, which I didn't kind of get at the time. I was just like, whatever, I'm running a thousand miles an hour. It was not a conscious process at all. And I'll just go home and use drugs. It was only when I sort of dug into all this stuff in Africa, I was like, oh that makes sense. That's why the business didn't work. That's per, that it all just makes sense now. Um so setting those boundaries um with people And understanding how to communicate my needs, how to get them met and how to meet them myself by doing these healthy habits and, you know, giving myself love and experiencing the whole range of my emotions.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that I think that was pretty much my experience, too, as I became more comfortable with myself, it was easier for me to have healthy relationships with other people. Um, I found and, and I wonder if you did, too, that there was a stark difference going from, using and stop using and not using and the big difference for me is when i was using my my world was very small i didn't have a lot of connection with other people and then when i got into recovery that changed i had suddenly people in my life and uh well i got back out into the world i got a job and i had to to interact with them but also the other people in recovery who were supporting me and i found that important
1: Yeah no I think that's insanely important and peer group I think plays a big role and when I was using drugs and drinking a lot and in that sort of madness I would hang around with those kinds of people um, and as I started to kind of get things back on track and go to therapy, um, I would work at one of my friend's office who was successful, who didn't do drugs. And I would go in there every single day and that would help me stay on the straight and narrow by surrounding myself with those people. And like you say, not being so isolated and meeting people in the rooms in Alanon, anon And um, I actually chaired an Alanon meeting for yeah, a, a few years which I found really valuable to have a commitment as well to always just be checking in with those people and to be able to share what was going on for me um, and building those connections from people who were moving in the right direction and upgrading their level of consciousness and working on themselves was crucial um, so I think peer group is important and also setting boundaries with those people and understanding your needs and what's going on for you too
0: right that setting batteries thing has always been difficult for me and it's something i i don't know if i will ever actually master that but it's something i I need to get a grip on in some way (laughs) um but you also found um that um you you needed to learn how to handle intense emotional situations so you know and it makes sense because as you're getting into recovery you're having more more contact with other people, you're having more more meaningful relationships and you will have experiences that are really difficult, I guess, to handle. And what, what did you learn about that?
1: Yeah, so one thing that happened for me was as I cleaned up my business and met, like you say, other people, there would be these times where I could manage a certain level of emotions and to kind of stay on track. But then something would go wrong that I'd forget about a bill or I'd finally decide to call a company who owed money um, and stop burying my head in the sand. And then that would create intense emotional discomfort of shame, guilt, all of that stuff. And then I will go and relapse because there was just an influx of emotion that I didn't know how to handle. So I slowly learn how to handle those situations and building a mental solid foundation, having things to go through, understanding how to, you know, tip my biochemistry with, you know, temperature, even just something as simple as splashing water on your face can really help shift your temperature and lower your sort of cortisone and the stress hormone. And by being able to then do some kind of intense exercise and having that in your life to take out some of the stress and the pressure and build up and the awareness around that, And then being able to do certain breathing and pace breathing exercises and being able to, you know, relax my muscles in a way, doing something called paired muscle relaxation, which is where you relax each muscle for five seconds and you can pair them down the body and then letting go and as you breathe out, just saying relax. And that's a really good sleep aid as well. But just doing simple things like that, like structured processes to allow myself to sort of calm down, um, definitely helped in those situations.
0: Wow, really paying attention to the physical aspect, your physical body, and how you your body reacts to to um, external influences. That was something that was um, definitely missing uh, in my early recovery. There wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of people um, focusing on the importance of your physical health and how how your body reacts to to stresses and so forth, and things that you can do. Um, To offset those but it it makes total sense, you know going for walks running exercise anything anything like that. I and I do use that today if I'm having a stressful day at work and not like most people I'm working from home now I walk my dog I take my dog for a walk and it kind of changes the whatever pattern my brain happens to be in at the time simple.
1: Yeah, like you say, just even going for a walk, I've been doing the same. Um, In England, it's not always the best way ever, unfortunately. But yeah, going out for a walk um, every single day, even if it's just kind of like a 20 minute walk. And for me, in terms of my mind, I find that um, it's quite hard to start new habits because I build them up into something that's really big, that feels unattainable. I have to go for a walk, has to be 10 miles long. And my mind runs off with me creating this whole plan and this massive mountain that then needs to be climbed. So I find it easy to start with micro commitments and just say to myself, right, let's just walk around the block today or let's just go outside, you know, spin around a 360 and go back inside. You don't even have to do a walk. And as I slowly build up, Um, And walk around the block. And then I walked, um, you know, like a 10 minute walk and then a 20 minute walk. And I found a good sweet spot, which is about a 25 minute walk round up by the sea. And me and my girlfriend have been doing that every single day during lockdown. Like you, I'm at home, just, and I've been at home for the past few months. And just doing a walk every day is amazing. Um, And I guess appreciating when it is raining um just sort of having that ability just to say okay it's raining i know it's only a 25 minute walk i'm gonna get wet again that sense of acceptance fighting reality doesn't change reality um, and just embracing it going okay cool i'm just gonna get wet that's fine and going for a walk and enjoying the rain on my face enjoying the wind blowing and the scenery and how everything's changed in the sea that's all rough by where i live all of that stuff is interesting and just remind myself, remind, reminding myself of the gratitude of, you know, I live by the sea, which is amazing. And without the kind of darkness and the rain, there is no sun. I wouldn't have any gratitude for the sun. If it was always sunny, I would just kind of be desensitised to it and take it for granted. So understanding those kind of yin and yangs and balancing those in my mind helped me to sort of stay on top of those little practices, like you say, which are crucial for our mental health and kind of long-term recovery.
0: Sure. So are these principles that we just discussed, is this basically the essence of DBT?
1: So DBT covers those rough four modules. The last one um, would be emotional regulation. So learning how to actually regulate our emotions and understanding why we even have them. And that was one thing that I learned as I kind of trained to be a therapist and discovered DBT uh, is the three reasons I have emotions. And for me, I didn't even know why I had them. I didn't really get it. But DBT explains that we have emotions to uh, motivate us for action. So to get out of some kind of danger, the fight or flight mechanism, being able to do something um, and being able to communicate to other people, communicate how we're feeling, how we're thinking and to communicate to ourselves. And just even understanding those three reasons was just fascinating to me to understand why they're there. What's the purpose? Am I just feeling angry to be angry? Do I just kind of resent my emotions or go and use drugs because there's any emotion there? Or am I able to understand why they're there, be able to communicate with myself, manage that self-talk, use the mindfulness to really communicate how I'm feeling and regulate and manage what's going on inside of me?
0: Can you talk a little bit about um, Lisa Inside Addiction? Uh, what, what, what you do there, how the hide idea came about. Um.
1: Yeah. So the idea came about um, as I kind of lost uh, my business before um, I had a job and um, yeah, working in care, which I really loved helping people with learning difficulties and mental health problems. And I enjoyed that job. Um, but then I, went on to do my degree in counselling just as a random opportunity. Um someone just booked me in for an interview at the university. So I went along because I was just open minded and the lady was like, This is what you're going to learn. You're going to learn about yourself. You're going to learn how to help others. You're going to learn, you know, all of this stuff. And I was like, okay, why don't I just do it? I just Looked at the person I'd be at the end of the three years of doing a degree, and I thought, I want to be that person, I want to have this skill set, even if I never even use it. I just want to have it just to set me up in my own recovery in my life. And as I went through it, I started to do a podcast because I thought, I'm learning about counseling and I want to understand what addiction is. And I thought, what a great way to get access to experts in the industry. So I started a podcast. And when it came to naming the company, um, I wanted to name it something that was a bit clear inside addiction. But I also added Lisa because Lisa was my mum's name. And I thought it's good to have meaning and purpose. So every day when I wake up and for people out there, just to really understand what I internalised from my mum, which was her life wasn't an example, her death was the lesson. And understanding that, you know, that's what we can learn from it. So that's why I kind of called it that. And as I sort of trained to become a qualified counsellor, I looked back over my history and discovered these four main areas around mindfulness, you know, interpersonal effectiveness in our relationships, distress tolerance, and how we deal with those stressful situations and emotional regulation. And this was part of DBT therapy. And I thought, wow, I wish I had this when I started because it would have shortened all of those years into weeks of just laying out these skills. Um, So I built a 12-week program around those exact four modules that I went through, and now that's what I do. I work with clients online, and I take them through a 12-week program to learn these skills, but not only the psychoeducational information, uh, which is important, but also allowing them to process their emotions, understand what's going on, And also deal with their cognitive thoughts so they can understand their thinking and what's happening and really make it work for them. So that's sort of where I'm at now, helping clients on a daily basis going through this programme. And I also have an online programme as well, that out called The Foundation Programme, which outlays seven tools which I use around meditation and exercise um, and how to sort of use those. So it's just a a good video programme for people to get started. And that sort of also goes over, you know, those micro commitments I spoke about earlier, the idea of how to actually start a habit, how to actually use habits as an addict or someone with an addicted mind or that struggles to sort of create those long term sort of delayed gratification routines in a sense.
0: I find it interesting that the podcast preceded the, uh, the business. That, yeah, yeah yeah so it was the podcast uh I mean podcasting is an incredible incredible experience it has been for me since I've been doing it um and you're right the the people that you're able to speak with that you might not otherwise meet and what you learn from them is just it's it's an experience that I never expected to have and I think it's really I think it's commendable and I understand it and um as one who podcasts, how a podcast can, can, can propel you to want to do something like that.
1: Yeah. And it was really interesting just to have those great conversations and I wanted to become a good counselor and work with people who are like me, who are like my mum, and be able to help people. And I thought, you know, like you say what a better way to be able to, to talk to those people and learn and just sort of suck up all of that information and to help others to make it public and to be able to share it with the world, so they can learn as well um, and sort of go through that journey and learn from these experts and understand the different types of thinking. Um, and I just think podcasts are just excellent.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and the connection that you have with people is a very personal and uh, um, experience for the listener as well as for me. Having when I when I hear from them, uh, to to kind of wrap things up, um, Luke, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the challenges that addicts in general have had to face with the pandemic and how you as a therapist are are approaching it?
1: Yeah. So I think it's been hard in terms of uh, isolation of being at home and just in terms of yeah being in this environment and I guess the sense of self-care. So being stuck, like, like we were saying, going for walks and stuff like that is important, but being stuck at home, drinking a lot and the impact it's had on the family and the people around you. Um it's difficult being confined in the same space, not being able to go to the pub or do the normal things. Also the disregard in a sense for the rules, you know, I if I was still using, I definitely wouldn't care about COVID and I'll go and buy drugs. That's just the cycle that I'm in, which doesn't help the economics. But I've mean with clients who are approaching me have found it really valuable in the sense that they are in lockdown and that they are sort of at home. So a lot of clients have been taking the sort of plunge to get things sorted. They're like, look, I don't have all of this other stuff going in my life. I'm not at work. I'm not doing all of these other things. Let's use this as an opportunity to get started, to take the action, to, you know, be able to work while we're off the ice in a sense. We're not in society with a million things going on. Let's work on our mental health, build these foundations, get everything going. And then when the world does kind of boot up a bit more, we're ready and we're not having so many social situations. And a lot of clients aren't having those situations where they're going out for drinks after work or, They're in the city in London, you know, doing drugs and stuff after work. It's not really happening because of COVID and because of lockdown. So a lot of the clients who are taking that opportunity to really, you know, like I say, build that mental foundation, ready for when things get going, that's been where a lot of my work has been, and a lot of clients, which has been a pleasure for me to help them go through that journey and build that foundation while they've got the opportunity.
0: And I have to say... um... You do a great job online. I can I can understand how, um, you know, if I were a client of yours, I would feel completely comfortable going to a session online like this. And so it seems to be a very natural way. Maybe it's because we've been doing this for so long now, but it seems like almost a natural way to, to talk with somebody, you know. So so I'm glad that people have the, the ability to reach out like that. It, it might actually give some people who would not go to therapy otherwise an opportunity to do it. It's so, so much easier now to go online and find a good therapist.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of clients, because of work and stuff, they've just got used to doing meetings online because everyone's just been forced to go online. So they're on Zoom all day, so they're like, well, I might as well have therapy on Zoom too. So that's just kind of the way it's sort of going. And even with younger kids now as well, who are always on Snapchat and TikTok and all this stuff, they're always FaceTiming everyone. So it's just becoming that kind of natural way Yeah, in the future kids will be like what do you mean you want to do it face to face why don't we just do it on Zoom Um, and that's just kind of the way it will go Um, and I think it's just interesting and it gives me as a practitioner the ability to help a lot more people, I can have a lot more clients who are in different locations or or even around the globe in one day which gives me greater access to help people, it makes it easier for them because they don't have to travel they don't have to go anywhere after work and they can just sort of be there Um, wherever they are, there is obviously some limitations in terms of some people find it hard to create a space. If you've got all the family at home, where are you going to do it? It's difficult. So I do advise clients if they can create a safe space in their car, sometimes that's good. Um, But there is no perfect solutions, Um, but it's just about doing the best we can with the situation that we've got.
0: Yeah. It'll be really interesting when this is all over, how we have to relearn how to actually interact with people in in the real life. (laughs) You might you might have that well, Luke. I really did appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time out of a I'm sure what well, I'm sure is a very busy schedule to speak with me um I really really enjoyed it and i and I urge our my listeners uh to this podcast to check out your website. We'll put links to it in the show notes as we post this and uh so that people can get in touch with you. We do have a lot of listeners in the u k by the way who might like to um learn more about your services so with that, that is it. That's another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to help out our website and podcast, you can do that in a couple of ways. We're doing more on Patreon now, so go on over to patreon.com slash Belief, and you can learn how to support the podcast and get some benefits, which I'm actually trying to deliver. And you can do the same thing on YouTube now. Become a member of our YouTube channel and get some special little perks And uh, if you can't help us out financially, that's okay. We just like to have you listening. So you all take care. Be well. And Luke, thank you so much again. It was really nice to speak with you.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, John, for having me.